Well, I hope you're all awake. Um, and it was amazing to see uh, most of you out on the dance floor last night. I have no fear of the future of public media after that. Um, uh, just a big thank you uh, from PRX for showing up and, and doing that. That was really, really great. So it was fun. So the, this is uh, Own Your Thing. And we're going to try to get into some really uh, fundamental stuff about the business of how do we survive, how do we thrive, um, how do we make all this creativity something that's really going to continue and and, and really change uh, everything that we're involved with. Um, so I'm kind of reminded of um, The Matrix and uh, Morpheus, who um, you know, looked, at, looked at the world we're kind of in and uh, was, could see uh, the physical world. And for our physical world, it's uh, the physical world of public radio, public media. Um, but he was also able to see a parallel world. So we're kind of familiar with the really visible world of what we deal with. Um, which is a world of institutions, very familiar, powerful, uh, successful institutions. They're all in front of us. They kind of like shape the environment that we have to deal with. So NPR, PRI, uh, APM, around 800, 900 non-commercial stations, um, very effective. I mean, for most listeners in the United States, this really is the, is the landscape that they're familiar with. This is how they view public media. But there's the other parallel, little bit more hidden world that you're a part of. And the first thing, you know, first of all, I, I couldn't fit all the names I could have fit on this page. I mean, this is really kind of amazing. Look at the diversity of all the new players, new names, the variety, um, different parts of a brand new ecosystem that's emerging. And it's one of the reasons this conference is so important, is that if you look around this room, if you talk to the people next to you, you're forming a whole new parallel world. Now, these worlds are not distinct. Um, there's lots of cross uh, pollination, there's lots of connection back and forth. So if you work with any of the networks or some of the key stations, you absolutely can pick up on themes of this world and the familiar world of um, uh, networks and stations. Um, but this is a brand new environment. And I may be preaching to the converted, but this is something that really didn't exist five years ago. Pace of change and the pace of new players is really quite astounding. Um, and the goal here, of course, is um, how do we all survive? So we're in this very complex, churning media environment. Uh, the audience has uh, so many more choices, and, and they can really do a lot more about shaping the future than the institutions can. So one of the reasons we're having this panel is like, how can you outwit, how can you outplay, and how can you outlast? Um, you want to be sustainable. You want to be creators who are not, five years from now, scrounging for dollars the way you might be right now. Um, and I think it's also really important um, to realize that as much as we're individual producers or small teams, you know, it's us in a room with a Pro Tools session, right? It's, uh, you know, we're, we're wrestling with technology by ourselves or maybe we're on the phone just trying to track down money. It can be a very, very lonely enterprise. But it's also really important that all of us on this uh, island of Survivor, um, we have so many allies with us and you're not alone. And I think Third Coast is, a real representation of that. And so this conference, if you look at the numbers, is as large or larger than the, the public radio program director's conference from just a few weeks ago. I mean, that's just astounding. That tells you how much that the participants are shaping the future of the medium. And you're such a key part of that. Um, so again, look around, meet people here, do more than dance. There's a lot of shared information here, and it's one of the reasons we have this panel, so that you know you can learn from their mistakes, but also some real emerging successes and benchmarks. Um, so, what's the opportunity? You know, um, depends on what your goal is. Do you want more listeners? Do you want to make more money? Um, but let me just show you a slide about what's happening with the dynamics of public radio listening. 
and then we'll look at what the opportunity is. So, year-long decline of the strongest news programs from NPR, just dropping off a cliff. And this is in spite of some really major news events. When I worked at AOL, this is something that we really paid close attention to. You could actually predict um, an event and then the length of a tail in terms of audience, but this thing is not recovering. This is dropping. So what does that tell you about all the money that goes into the institutions that I used to work for, um, the stations where I used to work? I mean, have they figured it out? They haven't. And it means that the audience is doing something more with their time. They're going somewhere. Now, maybe they're going to their uh, iPad. Maybe they're going to TV. You know, they like Alec Baldwin, maybe. But they're going somewhere, and they're also going somewhere else to listen. And that means to me that you can fill that gap. You have a curious audience, and you have every reason. You don't have to sit back and let the networks figure this out. You figure it out. But that, to me, is real opportunity. I think, actually, that's very exciting. The audience is hungry for something. <coughs> Let's take a look at some of the most powerful programs on public radio. Um, you know, I think there's a common myth that we hear from stations and networks that, you know, the professionals have got this thing under control. Well, look at some of the most successful shows and what their roots are. Car Talk independently produced. It's distributed by a network, but Doug Berman is an independent. Weekend edition, okay, NPR, wait, wait, don't tell me. Very much of an independent sound and feel. Doug Berman behind that. Weekend edition, morning edition, marketplace that I helped create. I have to tell you, we were very rebellious. Networks tried to shut us down. We had a different sound. We had a different attitude of how we wanted uh, stuff to sound on the radio. Pre-Home Companion, independent roots, absolutely. ATC Weekend, and then what do you know? Again, independent sound. So uh, for anybody who says to you that, um, gee, you guys are kind of the outsiders, you don't really belong here, the audience is telling you, you absolutely belong here, and the statistics point to it. So you have as much of a historical reason to shape the future of listening for whatever we call public media. So here's some of the things I you know, wanted to touch on a little bit on this panel. Um, I mean, I'm a firm believer that a single producer vision can change anything. It's because you have the power, the talent, the technology to do that. Um, and these are just three of the people who are living proof of that. Um, there are many paths to figure this out. So we have 400 plus people at this conference. There are probably 900 plus ways to do this right now and growing. So you can figure out any way to go. Um, what are some common lessons though? So you don't you know, remake the wheel. Um, you can build on the success of others. Uh, a lot of things we want to try to touch on, and we'll get to Q&A after their presentations. Um, a key issue for us, and it's one that we hear about all the time at PRX, and it's, it's frustrating, and there's no right answer. It's up to you. You know, what's really important? What's the balance between audience and money? Do you want to offer your stuff for free? Um, is the larger audience the most important part of why you're into this? Where are you in terms of that timeline? Um, what's the future of radio? Radio in terms of broadcast, what is that? Is there a role for you there? Um, if there is, what is that? How do you fit into it? Um, I, you know, I, I, I get paid to deal with program directors. It's a whole other world. Uh, they're constrained by clocks and money and taste. And there's a way to do it. It's very frustrating. But you know, there's a, probably a role for you in radio, but you have to figure out where you want to fit in on that. And finally, what's your relationship with your audience? So. Um, you know, I made a joke yesterday that when I worked at AOL, all the executives had this really, you know, cliche statement about the audience. What happens when the deer get guns? Well, when the audience has the tools of production, 
they changed media entirely. The whole game has changed. And so um, what we heard from the panel yesterday is how important it is to develop not just an audience, but a relationship with the audience. And then what's the next step after the audience takes your content and does something more with it, makes it their own? So are you ready for that? Um, we're really seeing just a remarkable remix culture and a transformation of what it means to be a producer, role of an audience, and then there's something that's really quite a hybrid. And you're all familiar with it in some form, but I think that's one of the most exciting things that we're going to be facing as a new generation of producers. So um, when they put up the audio for this session, um, uh, I really encourage you to go back to yesterday's panel, which was really quite good. There were some nice disagreements, a little bit of fun tension mm -hmm. with uh, Amy Costello from Tiny Spark, Jesse Thorne from Bullseye, and Ben Walker from Too Much Information. So um, today I'd like to start off with um, uh, Roman Mars. Um, as you know, a legend in his own time, but uh, <laughs> but he's a man from Chicago, and I've known Roman a long time, and we're we're just really thrilled to have him here. So, yes, did you have a? I just had a question about sorry about the graph. I was unclear what the side the what like what was the percentage of? Let me go back and find. I'm sorry. Sure, that's all right. So um, so the weekly. So this is the, uh, do, 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 this is people, let me just see, number of listeners in the top markets. So um, the, worry, the worry here is that, you know, you want to have the cum, the cum, the weekly cum is falling. And there's another statistic, another chart that I didn't put up, is that average quarter hour listening, which is so important, is that what this is, percentage of no, average No, this is weekly Q. This is weekly Q. Oh, but what's the percentage? Well, what that means is uh, the percentage of the uh, people using radio at that time. Okay? Thank you. Um, average quarter hour listening, average, across all network programs is now 11 minutes. 11 minutes. Average quarter hour listening. Now, that's distorted when you use an average. So if you were to take out ATC or morning edition, it might be a little bit longer. but it's shorter than you think, 11 minutes. And if you're in the podcasting business, you're not producing hours generally. <laughs> you're actually closer a lot of times to the way people are using audio than the network shows. It's really kind of curious. When I worked at Audible, um, we really worked very, very hard to look at commuting patterns and we tried to work with book publishers to make sure chapters were only 20 minutes because the average commuting time in the United States is 19 minutes or at least was in the 90s. So, you know, convenience wins. Thinking about your audience wins a lot. So, Roman, you wanna, uh, do you want to drive or do you want me to drive? Uh, I'll drive. Okay. Thanks. Uh, so the audience. Yep, we just have to double click it. All right. Uh, hello, thank you for coming. Um, so, my name is Roman. I do a program called 99% Invisible about architecture and design. Um, uh, it started as a project with KALW in San Francisco and the American Institute of Architects in San Francisco. And uh, I thought I'd play some because I've talked about Kickstarter an awful lot. I thought maybe you'd want to hear something. Uh, Katie, oh, Katie Mingle's here, so let's embarrass Katie Mingle. This is 99% Invisible. I'm Roman Mars. When people critique cul-de-sacs, a lot of the time they're actually critiquing the suburbs more generally. 
The cul-de-sac has become sort of like the mascot of the suburbs. Like if suburbia had a flag, it would have a picture of a cul-de-sac on it. I can still remember how strange that word sounded to me when my mom told me we were moving from the city of Atlanta to the suburbs of Denver and that we'd be living on one of these things. Hey, that's producer Katie Mingle doing my work this week. Hi, Roman. The cul-de-sac is a French term, literally meaning the bottom of the bag or the ass of the bag. So it's no wonder the French themselves prefer to use the word impasse. Another fun fact, the plural of cul-de-sac is actually culs de sac. But Katie and I have agreed that it isn't possible to refer to them this way without sounding like a couple of ass bags. I've always felt a little embarrassed by my suburban roots, by the cul-de-sac especially, which, with its uterine shape and having the word sac in it, gave me the feeling that I spent my early years coddled and sheltered in an asphalt womb. Living on a cul-de-sac has come to symbolize everything that young hipsters or just people who, are, who don't see suburbia as the American dream have come to despise, and it's taken on this symbolic role. That's Matt Lasseter, and I think he just called you a hipster. Yep, I think he did. It's come to epitomize suburbia, both in, both in the myth of the kind of happy nuclear family American dream and in the way that critics condemn it as a facade. Matt teaches a history of the suburbs course at the University of Michigan. And the great age of the cul-de-sac is the 1950s and 1960s. Matt says that by the 70s and 80s, our faith in the nuclear family and in the suburban American dream was starting to break down, and it's evident all over pop culture, like in the 1980s classic, E.T. At the beginning of the film, we learn that Elliot's parents are divorced and his father is down in Mexico with his girlfriend, and his mom's there alone, and the family's sitting around the table, and they're very sad. Uh, so, you know, I do a show um, kind of about boring things, um, and the challenge and the interest, interesting part to me is to, is to make them fun and, and interesting. Um, so I started this uh, as a project. It had underwriting. Uh, it had the backing of a station. Um, that's how I got the initial funds to, to do it. Uh, I didn't get paid a lot to do it. But, um, but it, it made it kind of not a stupid thing to do because I have kids and I have family. Um, and then I got some more underwriting and, and KLW floated the difference. And so I think one of these things that, um, uh, as, you, as you probably, let's see, I, I did this. Okay, so I did the Kickstarter thing. And um, it was really successful. It was really, really great. And I raised a lot of money doing it. Um, but it, it took faith uh, with a station, with some people backing it, to, for it to exist, to build an audience, to, to do that thing. And I, I think that's key. When you go to direct uh, fundraising, um, I think my big advice in, in the beginning is to, is to not uh, jump the gun and make sure you have an audience there uh, who will be willing to support you. Um, that's my biggest lesson for that. The, the second uh, lesson is, uh, is this is the reality of, um, of, of selling T-shirts on Kickstarter. Uh, this is my sister's house. I shipped out uh, 2,500 packages um, myself. Um, even, and Kickstarter, the other thing about Kickstarter is that it's a very public way to make a lot less money than you actually make. Um, <laughs> my merchandise and uh, postage was about $35,000. So 
um, taxes and uh, uh, and Kickstarter fees. Uh, so Kickstarter fees are five percent. Uh, Am uh, Amazon uh, credit card fees are about five percent. Kickstarter earned every dime. I I that's a check I'm willing to that they earned it. Uh, uh, credit card fees I'm not so happy about. Um, so, um, so yeah, so we had people over, we stuffed envelopes. It was really fun. I could have hired a fulfillment service to do it. I, I you know, I'm, a guy started his own uh, radio show. I've started my own radio shows ever since I've been in radio. I've rarely worked on a staff of anything. I was at Third Coast for a while, uh, for three years. But of the other 11 years, I was an independent, and I started my own radio shows. That's just the way I did it. So um, I wanted to stuff the envelopes. I don't, I don't know. It just seemed like it was part of the thing, and so I did it. Uh, next time, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I've learned my lesson. Um, so, so we're going to get to some some maxims, and, and then we'll we'll do more questions after everyone. Um, you know, the way that I run my show and the way I like my show is I, I think it's a personal show. I think it's I I think it's um, there's a sense like I let people know that I do it out of my house. I let people know these things. I let them know my personality. So I, I and I but I want to respect them enough that. I do it like any professional national show that I would work on. So, you know, be as entertaining and disciplined as produced as a pro, but be open and accessible. That's the way people give money to you and support you is because they like you. That's the, that's the way to do it. Let them know how it's, it's hard to do the work. Let them know that they're part of it. Um, the other thing is, um, you know, you could have a lot of listeners, and I, and I, I did. Uh, I, I mean, I do. I have, I have a respectable amount of listeners, but... 10%, uh, that's about maximum. That's who's going to give you money. That's who's going to write iTunes reviews. That's everything. That, that's about the limit of what you can expect. So set your goals based off of 10% uh, being brought to action. Um, these people that you're with, I've been doing Third Coast now for nearly 10 years, and uh, these are the people that you're going to be making radio alongside with uh, forever, hopefully. And, uh, you know, I know Katie from, from Third Coast, uh, so she was somebody that I wanted to do a piece for me. Uh, and then, you know, Nick Vanderkolk and Sean Cole and Ben Walker, these are all people that, these are my buddies. And uh, they, um, they, so they make radio with me, because I wanted to make a space where we could all make radio together. Um, and then, you know, the real thing that made me, gave me the most audience was that I was on a program called Radio Lab. And, uh, that changed the whole dynamic of the show. I got, um, I got, a, I was doing pretty respectable podcast business for like a little while, and then Radio Lab happened, and then that was it. So help each other out. This is not zero sum, you know. There, all I get, my most common, uh, my most popular web page is the fact that is what podcast I listen to. That market is not saturated, so you're not fighting with each other. Help each other out. Form a network, even if it's informal. And uh, I'm not on the radio a whole lot. Um, the audience that I serve is the one who pays the bills, and the one who pays the bills are the podcasters right now. And so, uh, so serve the audience that cares. That's what I recommend. What does that mean? What? What would you serve them differently? Well, like for example, I make a four and a half minute version for radio. Very quickly, people were telling me I wanted to, I want longer shows. I made longer shows. They're the ones who do it, you know. When they said, actually, I kind of want to give you money, you know, like I, I was just like rather following a model of going stations and distribution. I, you know, give it away for free and allow them to donate. Um, 
I respond to them because they email and write and I give back to them. So it's, it's about that. And then when people tell me, you know, when <clears throat> a radio station that will go un unnamed tells me I'm too laid back or something or the, the show is weird or whatever, um, I don't make it for them anymore. I, I mic it so it's this inside of the head voice. It's a personal, I create it for podcasts in a way. And in a way, it doesn't suit broadcast, and maybe it's diverging a little bit. Um, but I follow, you know, the people that care. So, follow up to that. Stations that go unnamed, they your to it back. And in the Kickstarter meeting, you said that you approached Kickstarter when the traditional avenues didn't pan out. You've done this long enough. Can you can you break what's going through the mind of the programming director? Well, I can't answer that. <laughs> no, like you're like you're the you know the hottest shit like podcast you know, and, and and the program director's like Meh. like I don't get it I don't it's so, not someone needs to explain something to you. well something I don't the question. yeah so the the answer is, is as I I guess if the show is popular and doing well then uh, that's that's I'm I'm repeating it right now so if the if the show is popular and doing well. What is going through the minds of program directors? Why are they saying no? And what are you hearing as an excuse for that? Well, one thing is that this, the module is kind of an odd beast, you know, like, so like it doesn't fit the hour long show. It's like the clock doesn't fit. And so I make long versions, but I do make a, like a standard version that's five minutes, that's four and a half minutes long. And it could be slotted into somewhere. Um, you know, I just, I don't know. I mean, I, I, it takes a really active person. There's a few in the system that really, like Jeff Hansen at KUOW, you know, like they buy a lot of stuff, they put a lot of stuff, they experiment, but others don't. And I think Jay Allison said this really well at a PRPD last year. It's like, um, I didn't get yelled at yesterday, so I'm going to do what I did yesterday so I don't get yelled at today. And I think that's what goes through the minds of most program directors. And so I don't, you know, I don't know. But you know, some people I talk to, and some are really fans, and and um, but also because I have limited resources or you know time, you know I I do serve that podcast audience, and so I don't bang on their doors a whole lot these days. So that it, it's partly my fault. We we we're both in this together. So well, I'm gonna let the oh, it's Carrie, yes. Um, just from Timus presentation to the same panel last uh, yesterday is that it just seems important to point out to folks that you also don't do this as a full-time Yeah, thing. oh, that's right. And, and that, rem that Remix does give you a radio station outlet. That's right. I'm sorry. Yeah, I should make that very clear. The thing that, the, thing that, the greatest thing about the show is I know that I'm making it for, for the Public Radio Remix channel, which I program. So, you know, so that I circumvented the program director problem. Um, and so, so I do know it goes somewhere, and that's kind of a nice thing. But um, yeah, my four-day-a-week job is working for PRX on Public Radio Remix. So like, you know, like I couldn't do it without that job, too. It's very clear. Like th that amount of money, you know, that is a lot. It seems like a lot, and I, I agree. But it's um, you know to fund a show. That's that's kind of not that's not a lot. And that was the biggest journalism Kickstarter in its history. So keep that in mind. You still need help from other people, and other resources. So anyway, thanks. Roman's really terrific, and um, 
the first show I think that I remember you doing was Invisible Ink, right, yeah. uh, at KALW. Uh, some of those shows are still on PRX, and it's really neat to go back and listen to Invisible Ink and kind of like trace a creative path to like, where are you now? It's really, I, I don't know, I went back there a few weeks yeah, don't, ago. Don't do that. No, it's really, no, it's really, really helpful. <laughs> the only reason I bring it up is that everybody here is on a path of trying to find your sound and, and, and what works for you, and it's, it's something that changes and matures and, and then changes again, and I think that it's just valuable to understand the past. So if you, like, you went back to the very first versions of um, This American Life, you'd be a little bit surprised. It's a little raw and it's not exactly there. Everybody is on this kind of creative path trying to figure out, you know, how do I, how do I get something that's gonna sound good to my ear, so. Um, Francesca Panetta is uh, next. Uh, I met Francesca uh, uh, at the last in-person Third Coast. Um, and it was very exciting, first of all, because um, she's from Britain and is charming, and she does great work. It's great personal work, and I really encourage you uh, to listen to it. It is a very unique sound, and uh, uh, what I really like that you bring to audio is a deep passion and respect. You can hear it in every production you do. Thank you. So, do you want to drive? Sure. Okay. So yeah, I live in London and um, I live in Hackney as well, which is in East London. And I'm going to talk about some of the work that I do um, in my spare time. Um, but I'm also interested in, in talking a bit about how work, kind of working for institutions or working outside and kind of how they can fit together a little bit like Roman was talking about at the end there, like does it have to be all or nothing and how you can make these things work. Um, I started... My first job was at the BBC. I came out of college and got a, a traineeship to be a sound engineer at the BBC, and I worked there for five years, five kind of fairly frustrated years as a researcher, not getting a job as a producer. And in the end, I left, um, and I moved to The Guardian, which is a, a newspaper, um, and I moved to work in their podcasting team. And around the same time, I set up my own podcast called The Hackney Podcast really as a place just to have fun. I was kind of feeling very creatively frustrated at the BBC. I wanted, just wanted my own space. Um, so it looks a bit like this. Mm -hmm. Is that gonna work? Oh, no, not yet, yeah. There you go. Okay, so just going down, they're all the programs here. They started off, there we are, program one in 2008. Um, and they were kind of fairly standard magazine programs, um, and I did one a month. And then they ended up being kind of themed programs, and they got, I made less and less of them. And they got kind of slightly more ambitious in terms of kind of sound and storytelling. And I thought I might play you a little bit of this one here, Wild Hackney, because I think... I was talking to my other British friends this morning in the Dark Friends about um, what to play you. This is not my favourite piece, but I think what it does is, is it's kind of an example of how I've found it really valuable to have a place to play. And I, you know, I really see the Hackney podcast as just my own, my own playground. Um, and so this really is not the kind of stuff I usually make, but it was fun. And I made this actually on holiday in Italy. <laughs> with my stepfather and um, yeah it was just us having a laugh really um, I'll play you the beginning of it The Hackney The Thames can hold just so much a sudden surge tide and London could be flooded 
If you live, work or travel in London, make sure you know the flood drill. Ask for details now. Wild Hackney. It happens. It happens. I would not wish to bring a flood down upon London, but it is one of the things I dream about. The legend goes that soon after the fields were left to themselves, a change became visible. It became green everywhere in that first spring that Hackney ended. People on the boats at that time were thinking, well, this is okay for us. But of all the places that got really badly affected was the rivers, and they weren't able to get on and off their boats. They warned us. London Assembly Scrutiny Report, November 2002. London is vulnerable to flooding, be it from the Thames tide, from rivers as a result of heavy rainfall, or from our drainage system. This risk will increase with effects of climate change. Areas that are at risk are the Walthamstone Marshes, Wickfield and some areas of Hackney Wick. The flooding risk is now being taken seriously by many of the responsible authorities, but there are gaps. Gaps in information, there is no comprehensive flood risk assessment for London and there is no full map of London's drainage system. Prepare a flood kit which contains simple items like antibacterial hand wash, a hand-winding radio so that if you lose your power you can still hear information from the news on local radio or a torch if you were to lose power. But the seawater exploded into those terrace houses, bringing jellies, hagfish, deep water creatures twitching as they floated up the A12. This is the BBC broadcasting on 1500 metres to the East Coast flood area. The following statement has been received... OK, that's enough. Um, um, so, yeah, I, no, no one was going to commission me to make that, um, to broadcast it. Well, actually, so, next slide. Let's go. How do I go back to your presentation? Let me see. Um, uh, so, we've done... Yeah, we've done that. Um, so then I, I got a call from um, the World Service um, at the end of last year saying that um, they were doing a London season running up to the Olympics and they, um, they wanted me to make some kind of Hackney podcast pieces for them. So I thought that was a kind of a really nice irony after having failed to get the job that I wanted um, now five years before, um, that they were basically commissioning to me to make Hackney podcasts for them to be broadcast to 40 million people. Um, and then... Um, I've just also got a Radio 4 four-part series commissioned on the basis of that crazy Wild Hackney programme. I said, I want to make more docudrama, apocalyptic pieces <laughs> with writers using actuality that I've recorded on the street, and they bought it. So um, I guess what I wanted to demonstrate with that was if you just go and do it and just show that you can do it well, um, people will buy it and broadcast it. Um, but... Uh, sometimes you just have to kind of show them that, you know, that it can be done and it should be done. Um, so those are those programmes. Um, what I 
I've done most recently is Hackney Here, which is um, it's a phone app. In fact, I'm going to show you this little video, which I do. Is it on Safari? What road are we on? Kingsland Road. That's done. Kingsland Road. CI10 going through Hackney. Take a trip to the land of kings, to where the children of the Jago's playground begins. But we start in Stamford Hill with an orthodox. <laughs> I slept with my brothers. We all slept together in one big bed. Nobody had a really high paid job. Hackney Hill works by GPS on your phone, triggering interviews, features, archive recordings, and even new poetry and music simply by your location. The forest is one of the big clubs. It wasn't a small club, but it's a club that everybody wants to be. I mean, when, when it's not play like the bass, you, you got to hold your heart. Hackney is a water borough. It has, has all these rivers, the marshes where pe people live by fishing. Water is the economy. Water is the life force entirely. With over 400 sounds, stories and features, Hackney here is totally immersive letting you experience the borough in a completely new way. It feels like a whole world in itself. For me, there's everything here, you know, there's, there's war zones of gangs, there's beautiful people. It's never been a static place, never been a dull place. I got her up to the back of the bus and said to her, do you want to lay down on the back seat? And without getting too graphic, I could tell that the baby was nearly here. The bus goes on and it's full and it's leaving and it's laughing and it's going on and it's morning. So that's um, that's what I did with my kind of Hackney podcast last last year. In fact, it just came out in March on iTunes, and so um, um, yeah, so that that's kind of been the latest step for the Hackney podcast, um, and um, people seem to like it. And so, and I'm I'm very enthusiastic about these kind of location-based apps. I've now done. Since then, I got another example of how how kind of making your own thing just because. It's something you want to do and believe in. I was then commissioned by something called the National Trust, which is like a heritage organisation, to make one for them in Soho. So they then came to me. We didn't even go out kind of looking for, looking for business. They came and, and tried it, liked it, and um, com commissioned uh, me and, and my team to, uh, to do one for Soho. And I've just done one for The Guardian in King's Cross and just doing another one in Farringdon. So now my fourth just this year, actually, of these location apps. Um, I mean, I do do all this while juggling a, a job at The Guardian. I've, I've kind of now gone down to kind of more part-time because um, it kind of takes up quite a lot of my time doing these other projects. So a bit like Roman says, it's, uh, you know, for me, it's, uh, it's kind of balancing up these two things, that you can pay bills, but also so that your own projects can make opportunities for you as well. Um, so I'm just going to give you some maxims. Uh, back to here. Uh, which are start small and modest, yes. Yeah, so you know the. That's okay. I think if you've got big ambitions and you expect something to be a kind of global success, um, it, you know it, it's probably better just to start because you want to do it um, and 
and, and see where it goes. Be, be open to the ideas and possibilities, like let things develop, work with what wells, works well for you um, along, along the way. Definitely be led by your heart. Make the stuff you really want to make, not because you think that there's a market for it or you think you should be doing it. Um, make really good stuff. Make it excellent. Uh, don't overthink it. Just do it and, yeah, let it grow organically. That's it. So this is, I just wanted to just stop here a second. So, um, so in the two years since uh, the last Third Coast, mm -hmm. you've done the app and all of this transition. Yeah. So 24 months. It's pretty, uh, pretty incredible. Um, so um, Martina Castro from uh, Radio Ambulante, uh, this is a really remarkable project, um, really visionary, um, starting with the notion of, you know, something we're familiar with here in the United States, but doing something much more than just approaching, doing something in Spanish. It's a much larger vision. So, Martina, do you want me to drive here yes, and please. just tell me what you want? Yeah, sorry. I hope you guys can see me and hear me. I'm not feeling so great. So, standing would probably be bad for both of us. Okay. So, um, you can, yeah, that's a good one to start. Uh, my name is Martina Castro, and I'm a senior producer and co-founder of Radio Ambulante, which is actually translated to mean radio on the move. And um, just to tell you a little bit more about me first, uh, I started at NPR, uh, my career there, as an intern uh, right out of college and worked my way up to be a producer um, at both the national desk and day-to-day -day in Los Angeles. And I loved it. I really learned a lot. Um, it was amazing how much I got to learn in such a short amount of time. I was only there for five years. But I had this bug. I just wanted to play more. And it's kind of fun to hear Fran talk about that same process at the BBC. But just the framework doesn't really allow for that, um, especially where I was in my career. So I quit. It was crazy, but I just was like, I'm at a point in my life where I can do this. I quit my job, and I found KALW in San Francisco. Another similarity that, um, that's just, I, have to, I can't say enough about this place. Um, it is definitely a breeding ground for entrepreneurial spirit, creativity, amazing support network, and I definitely credit it with making me ready to say yes to Daniel Alarcón and Carolina Guerrero when they found me at a conference and told me they wanted to make this. <laughs> I mean, come on. Who can say no to that, right? So I was like, okay, yeah, let's do it. I signed up right away. And um, along with our co-founder, Annie Correal, we set about to just to make what we love about public radio shows like This American Life and Radiolab and Snap Judgment, these character-driven, sound-rich shows in Spanish. And, you know, the reason we did this is, A, because we wanted this to exist. <laughs> um, but, you know, we, did, we dug around and we just couldn't find anything that was quite like it. Uh, in Latin America, it's just, you know, much more common to find live radio shows where it's personality driven and it's interview based. It's just less expensive. And if you're a radio producer, what I find is that you're mostly asked to do s spots and headline news and uh, there's just no room for this is what we heard. 
Um, so we think that there's hunger for it and that it's time to make it happen. We consider the United States to be a Latin American country. Uh, we have fi like over 50 million Latinos here, so uh, we think it counts. And, um, and we found some really amazing numbers about radio in the Latino community. Uh, the reach of radio in Latinos, both English and Spanish dominant, is 96%. And 50% of people who listen to radio, of Latinos who listen to radio, consume it exclusively on, on digitally. So it's just, this is the time. This is the time to do it. Um, they're also catching up so fast. This idea of digital divide is so outdated. Um, my cousins in Uruguay, where my family's from, uh, you know, five years ago, they had to go to an internet cafe to, to, to consume internet. Um, two years ago, they got broadband access in their house. And smartphones are about to hit. I mean, they're just catching up much faster than it took us to get here. So um, I'd like to play a little clip before we lay out the uh, strategies of uh, lessons learned so far. Um, because I understand not everyone here speaks Spanish. We're going to have a little translation here. Uh, but this is a story from our first episode on moving. Uh, which we, it's mudanzas. Uh, it was done by Nancy Lopez, one of our reporter producers extraordinaires. And uh, it's about this guy named Mayer Alortegui. He's from Peru. He and a friend in Callao on the port city decided to go on an adventure together. They decided they were going to go to the United States by hiding in a cargo ship and um, become stowaways. So they prepared for a 13 week journey a 13-day journey, I should say. <laughs> um, and uh, had just enough food and just everything. And then in the dark, they hid in the bottom of the ship. Um, little did they know, it, it wasn't going to go as planned. Um, so I think this is a clip of Maya explaining what it was like to be in the hull of the ship. Estás sintiendo los golpes. Pa, pa. El barco se levanta así. Hay oleajes de 40 pies de alto que tapan el barco. ¿Me entiendes? El barco a veces sube así, así, y después cae, pum, pum, así. Todo es oleaje, todo es este, ruido, pues no se sabe ni los días que uno está ahí, porque no puedes ver la luz del día, solamente ves lo oscuro. Es horrible, es horrible. Muchas veces llorábamos también. Y así pasaron 13 días. Ya no teníamos comida. Entonces ahí empezamos a buscar en, la, en las cargas. Manzanas, melones, sandías. Pero algo no cuajaba. Si habían pasado los 13 días, deberían estar ya en Nueva York. A la incomodidad del viaje se suma una incertidumbre aterradora. Y es así que un viaje difícil se convierte en una verdadera tortura. So 
is just a little example of the type of story we want to tell. Go what beyond. Happened? What happened? Oh, oh, oh. oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, um, actually, so he, they end up spending 26 days. The boat didn't go to New York directly. It went down to Chile first, then back to Peru, back to where he, they, it embarked from, and then to New York. So, I mean, they were literally almost dying by the time they were discovered by, I mean, they had their knife, Meyer had his knife out, he was ready to like battle because they thought, he thought they were still in the ocean, they were gonna throw them overboard, and that's when they realized that they were in New York, but they were this close um, to not making it. Thanks. You're welcome. Um, <laughs> anyway, we want to tell stories like this. You know, we're regular people too, and we have adventures, and we are not just victims of immigration policies and you know or of drug wars you know there's we're not we're, we go beyond that we're, we're regular people too and um so these are the types of stories we want to tell and this story is right right next to another story about um uh a pre the ex-president of honduras and what it was like for him to be on the other side of a military coup and what is it like to be experience that as a person you know, um, and that's right. You know, next to a story about an Argentinian kid who moved to North North Carolina and had no idea what the social rules were in high school, and he's as the new kid um, because they weren't the same in Argentina. Uh, so that kind of diversity of geography and human experience is what we want to represent. Okay, and now I want to tell the uh, rules, the the strategies learned. And I want to say also, we are far from made it. <laughs> I think we are definitely the baby on this panel. Um, so these are lessons so far. Uh, we're still learning as we go along. So uh, from conception to inception, and I mean inception as in the Leonardo DiCaprio type, okay? Like you gotta go out there and put your idea in as many brains as possible. And this was mentioned on the panel yesterday. You know, you can't be shy about it. Uh, I think there is sort of the secretiveness of like, oh, I don't know, someone's gonna steal it. Like the BBC's gonna come and do it better. And like, if they could do it, they would have done it already. And there's nothing better to protect your idea than to go out and tell everyone about it, that it's <laughs> yours. So just get that out of your mind and go out there. And the people who you're gonna attract in that beginning stage is gonna be your community. Um, when you need them most. Um, advisors, partner organizations, institutions, they're gonna give you credibility. And basically they're giving you a green light. They're saying, this is a good idea, we like it, keep going. Um, and mentors, people who have no stake in what you're doing, who just wanna see you succeed. And I couldn't believe that these people existed out there, but they do. Um, it's amazing and you will count on them for the rest of your life. <laughs> so um, that was a major step in us proving that we, had a, we were onto something. Uh, we got a lot of support before we even had a minute of content. Um, we raised $46,000 on Kickstarter, thanks to that community. Um, it was hard, and I can talk more about how hard it was, but uh, yeah. <coughs> Speaking of, well, so Kickstarter takes me to number two, um, and tell me if this sounds familiar. Call now, 1-800-KALW-917. That's 1-800-525-9917. I know you're going to the phone, two, five. I mean, I've said this so many times. If you've heard of Pledge Drive, um, 
the reason they repeat the number is because that's how what it takes. <laughs> so I I like to I like in the Kickstarter campaign to pledge drives, and I took I kind of stole this from Roman because it's true. They have a plan, they have a a deadline, they have a certain amount they have to raise. They roll out perks and gifts that you can only get at certain times to entice you, and they're all about why you need to give right now, and. If you want any advice, piece of advice on Kickstarter, it's just like you got to be relentless. I mean, it, Kickstarter doesn't use airwaves, but it uses the phone, Twitter, email, f everything. I'm literally picking up the phone to badger people. Um, and a plan. You need a plan. So that's that. Um, it helps to have a secret weapon like a kick-ass novelist uh, who has a, a network of amazing friends uh, who can donate cool books uh, to, to give away in your, on your Kickstarter. So I, I, that disclaimer aside, you know, it really is, you have to have a good team. And then, um, well, actually, one more thing about Kickstarter is that for our team, it was a real turning point in the project <coughs> because we had a great idea, um, but then really when you're in your Kickstarter campaign, you become a business. You really have to have a, have a, have, have an idea sort of have an organization of what you're going to do with that money when you get it and uh, look credible to people and really get your act together. So I think it's a really great way to really test yourself if you're ready. Um, what else? Okay, next one kind of speaks for itself. You know, have a plan, but you got to change it sometimes and you got to be open to that. Uh, I don't know how many people would fall into the bad habit of like sticking to something until the end. But like, really, I don't think that's the way to go. You gotta be flexible. We set out to do Spanish language program. That is literally the point of our show. And yet we realized, huh, well, there's a lot of demand from people who speak English for these types of stories. And we are, have access to stories that they don't have access to. So we changed course. Now part of our mission is to create a bonus track for every episode um, in English. Um, what else? Our, our website might not necessarily be serving us as well as we wanted it to. So we're even considering scrapping it after spending a lot of money on it. Um, not that that's necessarily happening, but we've, we're considering it. And these are things you have to consider. Um, we also were really aggressive. We thought, oh, we can totally handle a monthly podcast um, with full-time jobs. Uh, no, we could not. Um, <laughs> we were burning out really fast. So we said, let's take it easy for our pilot season and do it as we can. Um, then number four is really important. I think everyone else has echoed this. Do not quit your day job if it's awesome. <laughs> I have an awesome day job. I'm the managing editor at KLW. It affords me the time and flexibility and creative energy to do all these side projects that I do and a full-time pay. So we didn't have to make any hasty decisions because we were running out of money to pay ourselves, to like literally feed ourselves. And then when we got money through the Kickstarter campaign, we were able to put that to other resources, to bringing on producers, to bringing on uh, um, you know, tape sinkers and, and paying studios. So I just can't stress enough how important that is to just um, debunk that myth that you have to jump all the way in and be homeless and like put it all on your credit card. I don't think that's necessary to do your own thing. And to remember that you are now a business person. Uh, it's great, you, you thought maybe, okay, your passion is now gonna be what feeds you, but the other part that really feeds you is how savvy you are as a business person. So we've had to be creative about 
how are we going to make this sustainable? Well, we've gotten a lot of response from Spanish teachers. They love it. They're like, wow, our students are loving this. Give us more. Like, we want to do a curriculum. Okay, cool. This might be a, an avenue for, for funding. Um, what else have we done? Micro donations, pursuing private donors, um, live events. We've already hosted one. We have another one coming up in San Francisco on Tuesday, if you want to come. And, uh, and uh, workshops, trainings. We've already done a few of those. So just, the, you know, I think that I was just recently at the Online News Association Conference, and I think there, that was the biggest lesson I took away, is that journalists aren't, they're not making the switch, that we are now business people. So don't put that responsibility to anyone else. It's your job. And my universal lesson. Next slide. Is that you can do, you can own your thing without doing it on your own. This is the number one thing. <laughs> Look at these amazing teams up here. You know? How could anyone do it on their own? They have each a special power, you know, a special gift. <laughs> but not one person could do it on their own. And that is literally what I think is the strongest element of our team. Take everything else away. And what, what, the reason I know we are going to do this is because we each bring something no one else has, but combined, you know, we can't do it on our own. Not one person could do it on its own. And so we, we appreciate each other and appreciate that concept. And, um, and yeah, it's, 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 it's your team that gives other people confidence that you can pull it off too. So thank you. I, th I think the first appearance by the Care Bears at a third coast. That's really great. I love that. Um, I, I wanted to ask one question, then I open it up uh, uh, for more questions. But uh, my, my question is, how do you think about um, your audience? And the reason I bring this up is that, um, Francesca, you and I had a little online uh, back and forth about uh, essentially what do you, who are you making this for? Um, um, Roman, you brought up the interesting uh, notion, and it struck me really hard that about um, you know ten percent of your audience is really going to be your core, <laughs> which reminds me the, of the radio practice of like one in ten people listen to public radio give. It's the so same. It's, yeah, it's the same. Universal. It's like this core. It's very interesting number to see appear, and then uh, Martina, uh, for you, I mean, you had you have a sense of a target audience, but then it sounds like it's actually changed. You're discovering there's much more to that original vision. So can you just talk briefly about how you view the audience and how that relates to your creative process, and then we'll open it up. Um, <laughs> I don't think very much about my audience. Exactly. <laughs> she does not. I really don't. <laughs> I never have. Um, I, I know. And it, it's not just for the Hackney podcast. I just I, I make stuff that I like, um, whether it's for The Guardian or for the BBC or for the Hackney. And, you know, people all around the world listen to the Hackney podcast, so it's certainly not for local residents. But, um, yeah. I don't compromise. <laughs> what about the app? What about? What no, the app? No, I'll make, I make the content that I want to put on, what I think is going to work. Um, yeah. Really? I, <laughs> uh, so I, I think about um, my audience a lot. I, 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 make a, I, I make an entertainment show. I like entertaining. I was, that was the goal, goal and challenge of this particular job. Was I was like I, I want to host again. I want to write more. I want to um, I want to make something that's entertaining. So I think about them a lot. I still make it for me first. That's the that's the job. I make the pieces I want. But 
I, I like my audience. I'm like <laughs> fan. Martina? Um, it's a really good question uh, because we set out to make something that we like also. Um, but also we have so many different audiences. You know, if you think about Latin American audiences, it's just totally different. They have no idea. They've never heard something like this. You know, we actually had one of our stories was heard by a, it, our, it's actually on the web, Third Coast websites. You may have seen it. It's the one about the two guys with the same name. And it was reported by Camila Segura in uh, Colombia. And she played it for her friends. She literally sat them down and said, okay, you all have to listen to this now. And afterwards, uh, her, her friends loved it, and they said, wow, they were so great, but I don't know why you, uh, you chose that actor with such a weird accent to do that. And we're like, no, it's real. It's a real people. <laughs> like, they don't get it. They don't get it. It's, <laughs> you know, the last time they heard something like this, it was radio theater, radio dramas, you know? So um, we know that we're basically, I mean, I don't mean to put myself in a club with This American Life, but think about how when they came out, they had to make their audience. And we really consider ourselves in that position. But then at the same time, now that we have English language content, we really know that you guys get it. So it's kind of exciting to do both, but it's, it's really juggling two very, very different types of audiences. Great, that's helpful. So uh, questions, and if you can, should they use the mic? No? no? Okay, just shout it out. So. Yes. Well, I have a question. Do any of you get grants? And if so, do any of you have nonprofit status? And if not, has it hindered you in your grant uh, getting in any way to not have that, like, if you work with a conduit or I got a grant to, to make Hackney here because I did actually need money for the technology. And I, I am a nonprofit. I did help for that. I have a, my, my fiscal agent is PRX who allows me to apply for grants. I haven't received any, but that's the, that's the, that's the theory. Um, but in addition to that, you know, they, they're my fiscal agent and they help me with payroll and things like that. So we have a deal like that. And that but a lot of the intention was to apply for grants with that ID. But no, have you had any, have you run into any grants that you're interested in applying for? Or no, I've, I've applied, for, I've, I've, we've applied and <laughs> failed. I mean, I, I hope that'll change, but, and, you know, so yeah. So I applied, uh, once was, one was applied under KLW as a, as a nonprofit. I've never done it under my own name. Uh, I've always found some, some entity to, to work with on it. But you've never found that that was a problem? Like having a it was a problem, and then I never got one. Yeah, NEA is very specific, where you can only have one tax ID, you can apply for a grant at a given year, and things like that. So, so yeah, I, I don't know for sure, but... But for the most part, I, I think that it's good to align yourself with a nonprofit, and it's it's good to work with people, and and it's a good chance for you to work with people. So I talk to different architecture foundations as a um, to be my fiscal agent as well bef before we settled with you know talked start talking worked out the details with PRX, um, and uh, you know so I, I think there's a good opportunity to 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 pair with people. But I don't know like what the answer is because I've never gotten a grant. <laughs> uh, we have a fiscal sponsor, Pulitzer Center on Crisis Reporting. Um, 
and we have applied for grants and also not gotten them. So, uh, but we, we really haven't done that aggressively yet. We've been so putting. Oh, well, we did get one. Yeah, but I mean, we but like not not to the point that that's why we launched the Kickstarter. I mean, that to to us was really important uh, to do at the point where we were because we weren't going to create content um, at that point without it. So we um, so yeah. So I think we're more aggressively looking now uh, now that we have sort of a flow going. <laughs> but we're still we're about to, have to finish our third episode, and um, we'll finish our fourth before the end of the year. Sam? Um, I was wondering, particularly with um, Francesca and uh, Martina, Roman, I kind of know, but basically I was wondering about like what your collaborate, how you collaborate with other people. I was, Francesca, we haven't met, but I was just sort of looking about your um, internet uh, existence before we came here, and it just seems like you had this like legion of volunteers. I don't know if that's true or not, but I'm just really curious about like how you interact with other people and like what you look for in collaborations, because I'm assuming this is all just not you and, and how you like get other people to work with you? Um, yeah, when I started, people started emailing me asking to help out in the programme, and um, I really wanted people to be able to take part because um, it felt like a kind of, kind of felt like, you know, it sounded kind of community-ish and that people should be able to work on it. Um, but I'm quite picky as well about my programmes, and so... Um, I really only let people record, do field recordings for me. I do all the interviews myself and I edit it all myself. And um, so people come with ideas and they record actual... I mean, they, the actuality is like just... Um, well, is field recording the right word in states? Like just yeah. the sound of like traffic and stuff. Mm -hmm. So generally that's, that's how they take part. So you mean specifically like on our team? Well, it's always someone knows someone and has already a good working relationship in some other regard. Um, but like on our specific team, we have we just got interns, which we're so <laughs> excited about. But up until then, I mean, me and Nancy were doing all of the sort of mixing and sound production. And I even I edit a script, but a lot of the scripts go through um, all of them go through Daniel. Um, so. Uh, and then the administrative part is we're I mean, it's kind of like a five people, six people team that's like kind of managing all these all this stuff. Um, but uh, and then training people how to do it uh, because that's the thing we find we keep finding is that we we really work with amazing uh, journalists, um, very very professional in their field, but don't know how to do radio. So I'll train them on Skype <laughs> how to do it and then or we'll send someone or we'll hire someone or we'll send them to a studio so that's like we end up depending on a lot of people on the ground to help us make it happen um, yeah Robin you had a question yeah um, I wanted to ask about uh, paying yourselves versus paying your collaborators um, we kind of got the impression at least anecdotally from talking with a couple people that um, when you do get your hands on some money via through grant or Kickstarter or whatever that the impulse seems to be pay the people that you need to work with first before you actually pay yourself mm -hmm. so that they can help you sustain the project even if you know it's not like being sustained through you making money off of it. Am I am I right here that this is actually what's happening and so can you guys talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. I'll say that's 
that's pro that's been the case when I've when I got a grant. Yeah, I paid everyone else. Um, I, I was lucky that I could kind of do both on this one. So I mean, but I but I always paid contributors, even in, even when I didn't have money, I paid contributors out of pocket. And because um, I that's how I wanted to do it. Um, and I also, you know, and, but, uh, but yeah, but my big, you know, my, one of my biggest expenses was, was hiring Sam and, you know, that's money well spent. And then I paid me and, and, and still pay contributors. So, but, but nothing like ramped up tremendously. Like I didn't pay everyone a lot more all of a sudden. I tried to keep it all contained. So. Yeah. We always paid our producers and contributors first too. Um, but I think it's really based on need. I mean, really the people who are making it um, and the, the, everyone on our team, you know, we're, we're, we're conscious of like the fact that we want to invest in keeping our team together. So, you know, if we need to pay one of our reporters a little bit more so she doesn't, uh, so she, she can handle, you know, because she left, lost her job or something. I mean, th these are, th it's really circumstance based um, just to keep it together. I don't need to get paid. I have a full-time job. So that, and, but you know, I took four months off earlier this year and <coughs> You know, I couldn't really do more work for Radio Volante without doing extra side work to support myself. So, and I ended up getting paid a little bit of Radio Volante money. But it's really all about like keeping it together, keeping the team together, but also making sure you can support the the growth of the project. I think that's number one. Yeah, in in my case, I should say how it's structured is I own the show, so I I make a profit and split it with PRX when I make that profit. So I set the budget. We agree on the budget. Where does your profit come from? from making more money than we spend in the budget. <laughs> you know, just roughly. <laughs> but, but, but like, so we, we set the clock, we decide, okay, so this is how much we're going to set the budget at, what is the remainder? And that is my salary for the show. So, and so it's not a salary salary, it's like a profit from the show. Mm -hmm. And I could have invested that into year 2015 of the show, but I chose to take it out now because I got kids to feed and stuff like that. So, but yeah, so that's how we structure that. So that's a great part of owning it. You can kind of decide when to take the money out if there's any profit at all. But sorry, do you make a profit because people buy the podcast or donate? Yeah, I make a profit because there's extra money from Kickstarter and underwriting. And, and so I, once I make the budget for the, for the 17 months after I pay everybody and project that out, that remainder becomes what I pay myself and over time. Yeah. But I mean, because conceivably, I could take all that money, just fold it into 2016's budget or 2017's budget. But I mean, there's a certain point where you have to just stop the clock. We we you know we split the proceeds, and then and then and that becomes my pay. There's not built-in salary for me for the show. I yeah. wanted to own it. Yes. Yeah. Um, I mean, you're all clearly very talented and like experienced producers. And I'm wondering if there's if you think there's a particular skill set you need to gain before trying to really start your own project. I mean, I think there's like. <clears throat> it seems to me like uh, even personally there's this sense that any half-formed idea would be a great podcast mm -hmm. but um, I'm wondering if you think like <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah and so uh, I'm wondering if you think that it's important to have a certain skill set before you really set off to, to run a project or if there's value in just throwing stuff at the wall and seeing what sticks for a while Well, I think there's something to be said to just doing it. So you can make what your product, 
um, whatever it may be, your podcast, let's say, um, in your home and learn as you're making it for nobody, <laughs> for yourself, like just to do it, just to make it. And I think that that's really a good place to start if you don't have, if you don't already have the skills of like making a radio show every day, like if you don't know that you could sit down and mix and interview and do that right away, then just start doing it anyway, but learn as you go along and don't make it your big prod, don't launch it <laughs> until you've got it down. And then you're, then you're learning on the job in a way. And I, I think that's the biggest advice I give to people who want to do this is just start doing it. Um, but once you get, get it under, get your feet under you and you really know that you can make it happen. Um, you'll know if you want to make it public. Exactly. If, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll have a sense of like, do you want to set up an iTunes feed? Well, if you're embarrassed by it, you won't want to do that. But if you don't make yeah. it, you won't know. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, think, I think working, that working is the only way. You can't think your way out of your bad habits when you're a young producer. You, you work it out. So I would, I would put out as many episodes and give yourself deadlines and make it, just keep making stuff. It, I mean, it took me forever to do something I was proud of, which is why you shouldn't go to PRX and download <laughs> Invisible Ink and listen to it. I mean, I was okay with that. Was okay, but you know, so it's not like. You know, I, I, I want to point out too that you know most of the conversations I've had in the last forty-eight hours have been from producers asking about money and actually the fear factor of like, you know, I got into this to make radio, but oh my god, if I'm going to do this, I I've got to figure out the money side of it. Utterly intimidating and crazy, difficult. Um, but that's why there are so many other experienced people walking around that you can call upon. Nobody's going to re refuse your phone call if you have questions about mm -hmm. how do I put together a budget or who do I approach or can you handicap some uh, uh, funding sources for me. When PRX began, the very first grant we got did not go into the business. It was designated for the business plan. That's where the money went. Mm -hmm. And we had to make sure that we could, could we craft a business before we even had a business. And Amy Costello, who was on the panel yesterday, said, have a business plan. And a business plan doesn't have to be like, you know, 500 pages with, you know, spreadsheets. It can be, it's just a plan. And yet it's something that works for you. But it is something that you can there share with others that has a dollar figure to it and has a little bit of a path about where you're going to go. And then other colleagues here can help you flesh that out. Uh, also, making radio is really cheap, or podcasts. I mean, the, the kit's pretty cheap, and it's just your own time. Like, we're really lucky. Filmmakers really want to be doing what we're doing, yeah. right. and they That's can't right. do it for free, and they're dependent on other people. You can just do stuff yourself so easily, and I kind of think we should be kind of really excited because it's so cheap. Mm. Uh, and I would, I would learn the joy of the business part, honestly, yeah. <laughs> because you, you're going to have to do it. What's the joy part? <laughs> just like just being creative with trying to like you know solving the problem you guys are producers to me producers mean solve problem solver you know I mean that that's why I actually you know Paolo likes to call directors I like to call producers because I think I think that you know like that producer means you do whatever it takes to get the show on and this is yeah. going to be what it takes to get the show on and I, I think it's kind of an exciting part to explore it's not something I'm particularly adept at, but I'm learning as I go, and I like it. So, The other little building block I would just throw out as we come to an end is um, our general experience, but I've seen each of you has actually a nut graph of like what you are. Like this is what we're doing, and it is tight, and it's clear. And get your idea down to one quick, pithy vision. You know, you have five minutes with somebody in an elevator. Go. Can you explain it? Can you explain that to a listener who's never heard your podcast before? 
You have kind of like an instant, <laughs> grab them. So be able to sell yourself in a genuine way about you know, your passion and what this thing is specifically that you're doing. So great, well thank you very much. This was fun. Thank you guys, thank you. Thanks. Thanks.